there, and welcome to Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zedic, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health. My guest today is Mara Aspinall. You've heard Mara and I speak before about COVID testing. Mara is a professor at Arizona State University and become one of the leading experts on COVID testing in the U.S. She has an undergraduate degree from Tufts and an MBA from Harvard. Welcome, Mara. Hey, Mara. How are you today? I am very well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you and speak to you. And it's it's been a while since we, we last spoke in person. Um, or we last spoke, the last time we spoke, we were in a really different place with COVID than we are now. But we've we've spoken several times on our podcast um, that, you know, about COVID testing, employee testing, employer testing, and boy, are we in a in a different place today than than a month ago or three months ago. So we have some questions for you. <laughs> And and we called you to schedule this today um, after the government announced that, that there would no longer be free COVID tests available um, or readily available. So so here's my first question for you. Um, COVID official testing, lab-based testing is down. We work closely with LabCorp. There are, you know, all the major labs are, are moving staff around or laying them off from their from their their COVID testing units. Even home testing is down. What does that mean? Well, there are a lot of nuances here. Let me first start with the government piece. Um, Free tests through covid.gov is no longer functioning. So they gave out between 60, 65% of the billion they had initially, but there Mm -hmm. still are tests available for Medicare and Medicaid patients um, and uh, recipients, not our, let me just say that again, COVID, There are a couple of clarifications. First on the government testing, Um, covid.gov, covidtest.gov is no longer functional. And they gave out between 60 and 65% of all the tests, but there still are eight tests a month available for people with Medicare and Medicaid insurance. Um, For many, but not all private insurers, there's also reimbursement for testing. But your broader question, Hmm. is where are we? Right. I would say, you know, there's good and bad news here. The good news is there's less testing because there's less COVID around. Mm-hmm. Um, the bad news is the only way to slow a surge is through testing. And it's absolutely essential that people know when and how to test, whether it's a lab test or a home test. Right. Right. So we're still seeing, you know, we're still seeing 500 COVID deaths a day. Yeah. We're still seeing, you know, what's that 150,000 a year, which would be a very bad flu season. Um, You know, we're still seeing 80, 90, 100,000 reported positive tests a day with fewer people testing and fewer test results being reported. Um, are, you know, are we just not testing to keep our heads in the sand or are we just not testing because we don't need to test? We know. Well, 
I want to clarify some of those numbers. Please. So 80 to 90,000 positive a day. We're down from at one point in the summer, we're at 100, 105,000 reported positives a day. I believe that the actual number is five to eight times that number. Yes, we've been quoting that statistic heavily. It was 10 and down to five to eight. Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. and um, we won't bore the listeners with how we get there. But um, I believe in the midst of the summer, there were more positive cases than there were last January. And the danger of the... wow, Yeah, I think we were clearly in the million cases a day positive in the um, July timeframe. Things got a little bit better in August, but the mid to late July, first week in August, million cases a day. Well, I certainly my own family experienced that, but I can't, you know, I can't speak to others. Yeah, everywhere. And why are the numbers so low? It's because of that home testing. So we'll talk about home testing in a minute. What worries me is that people, um, companies have said, we're only going to test when there are more than X thousands of cases a day mm-hmm. in my state, in my community, in my zip code, in the nation. And um, when they say that, they're not multiplying it by five. The New York Times, the CDC, I would love a dotted line on their chart to show the fact these are reported cases, these are likely cases. And I don't care, use the 5X. You don't have to go to my 8X. Um, but there's nobody who's, who, who is saying that the reported cases is equivalent to actual cases. It is not. Yeah. So I think that those numbers at 70, 80,000 a day need to be qualified that those are only reported and they are one-fifth to one-tenth of the, of the true cases. So when we hear people use the terms post-COVID or post-pandemic, they are just expressing wishful thinking. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I actually think about it. We are never going to be post-COVID. Right. That is a state that is wishful thinking. It's sort of like being post-cold. Colds are going to exist, you know, forever. The flu is going to exist forever. And good, bad, or indifferent, um, maybe probably pretty much bad. Um, it is going to um, going to be forever. Are we post pandemic? Is a more interesting question. I think it was Dr. Fauci who said we're past the acute phase, and it's not because there are fewer people; it's because it's less lethal. Right. So let's talk about the second part of your numbers: um, five hundred dying a day. What I have spent a lot of time doing and update um, every month and we'll update it again. Well, I'll just say what I've spent a lot of time doing is comparing COVID to the flu. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is that today, let's say the summer of 22 surge, the death rate from COVID is about 0.1%, one tenth of 1%. That is roughly equivalent to flu. That's great news. And I think it's gigantic. Where did we start? We started at 7%. 7% of everyone who got COVID died. 
Now that came down relatively quickly as more people got it and our healthcare system learned how to treat patients. But for much of Delta and early Omicron, we're at 1%. Now that is 10 times the flu. There is a big difference. That is 10 X. So the fact that today it's like flu, and I have some people who I argue with regularly who say, see Mara, it's just like the flu. Well, just like the flu two and a half years into it is not the same as saying for the last two years, it's just been the flu. It hasn't been, but it has moved to that. Now, the real epidemiological question, or forget the big words, the real question that we all debate is, is it because Omicron is less lethal or is it because we now have background immunity? And therefore, with enough people who either had COVID or have been vaccinated or both, the number of people dying is much lower. And I have certainly learned a lot about treating COVID. I mean, the people who are hospitalized, it's a very different experience than, than two years ago. True. No, that's a great piece. And even proning the patient, moving them around, even that little bit of a not terribly sophisticated um, technology has made an enormous difference. But you look to countries where they had lockdowns and they have very little background immunity, their death rate is much higher than ours. Right. Um, Can you explain the proning the patient for our listeners who don't know what you mean by that? Uh, it, it's, um, in the non-medical way, it's turning that patient, um, very similar to pneumonia where the last thing you want to do with pneumonia patient is have them sit and have the fluid sit in their lungs in conceptual layperson's term. It's moving them around. So the fluid in their lungs and elsewhere is moving. Right. And I know that was unbelievably challenging when there were such high numbers of patients in ICU that it could take four to six staff members to turn a patient who was connected to a respirator or an ECMO or, you right. know, and, and lots of other, other devices. So I want to go back and ask you about something else. So, so the free test kit distribution, do you think that program was successful? Um, it was not as successful as the administration or I and many others would have liked. Uh, I would have hoped that virtually every American would want free tests and have the availability of those tests in their home. And during the space of the program, maybe an inside baseball comment, but the expiration dates expanded. So mm -hmm. it was no longer a test would be good for six months. Tests are now typically good for 12 to 18 months. So I would have thought that everybody would want a few tests in their proverbial um, you know, kitchen so they could um, use them when they're going to see a vulnerable person or they're coming back from a concert or otherwise. So was it successful? I've only heard positive reviews for people who got the tests and used them. And did enough people take them? I don't think so. But I think the administration at this point made a very good decision to say, let us hold the tests that remain that have been paid for in case there is a significant surge and they have to go to targeted areas. Interesting. Interesting. And I don't think most people understand that that's why the program was put on hold to, to reserve the, the supply of tests that we, that we currently have available. 
I have heard feedback that that the program was very much um, a part of that or, or played into the haves and the have nots that people that have access that have internet access that have, you know, that are computer savvy knew how to order them. Um, you know, people, you know, people who weren't home aren't home during the day had difficulty getting getting or ordering kits or getting them delivered. Um, do you think that putting it on hold turned us into a greater portion of the haves and the have nots? You know, I wouldn't think twice about running to CVS and buying four kits um, or following the guidance. You know, the newest guidance has you using two or three tests after you're symptomatic. You know, the average hourly employee, you know, what kind of barrier have we created for that? Well, so first, there's no program that will solve the needs for every American. And I think if we've learned anything through this pandemic and quite frankly, healthcare broadly, there is no one solution that will meet everyone's needs. And I think it's fair to say at the beginning, they said this won't meet everybody's needs. It will meet um, a you know certain number of people's needs who could do it. In terms of internet access and otherwise, there were phone numbers, there was a lot of press. I think that the administration did it in at least two languages, if not more, that there was a fair amount of communication and education to try to make it accessible to all. Um, in terms of not being home during the day and otherwise, I mean, it's the post office. If people get right. mail, they, they, get, they get mail but isn't enough. And here's where I get, it's not really a um, advertisement, but I'll, I'm proud of the program that um, I work on with the Rockefeller Foundation, um, which was an extension of Say Yes COVID test from NIH. And that program was not on a national basis, but I think in about 12 cities around the country where they either had distribution centers or sent it through the mail. And that program was tremendously successful. And the Rockefeller Foundation basically created the successor program, which we call Project ACT, ACT, Access COVID Tests. And in this case, the first million tests were paid for by Rockefeller and they were free um, to uh, high socially vulnerable index, high SVI communities and or communities that had very little access. There are a lot of um, zip codes in our country where there are no retail pharmacies. There are whole counties where they don't have retail pharmacies and they can't just drive down the street and pick up four tests if they can afford it. So we continue with that program today. We have five states um, in the program. Hopefully we'll be adding more um, where people can go to a very simple website and don't even have to give us their email address, just mailing address. And through work with iHealth and Amazon, tests go to their home. So there are other programs, but there's nothing in this country where one size will fit all. Right, right. And and, and throughout COVID, there's been, been a divide of the haves and the have-nots yeah, for me... testing for treatment um, now, now for long COVID treatment. Right. Yeah. And I, you know what, I'm glad you said that. Cause I didn't, what, what I said is no one size fits all. Um, it is absolutely critical to acknowledge that your fundamental point is absolutely true. I think COVID, um, 
and the challenges around public health expose the inequities and inequalities in our healthcare system. So you can start, forget testing for a minute, you can start with education. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, many, many, many kids who have parents who are um, essential workers didn't have the privilege of staying home with mom or dad, um, showing them how to use the computer, giving them their own separate room, or even having a computer. These kids did not have that privilege because their parents had to go to work and never had um, the chance to work at home. So from the educational system, as you probably saw just a week ago, um, in uh, people of color and high SVI communities, the learning gap only exacerbated during COVID. And in mostly white and other communities um, of, of wealth, what you saw is the gap on what they didn't learn during the pandemic was much, much smaller. And you saw communities that did the right thing, getting computers, having free internet access and otherwise, which is great, but that only had a small amount of the, only filled a small amount of um, the gap that exists. And as you said, treatment, vaccines, otherwise, I think this country I do believe that there was a lot of acknowledgement of this, some from the federal government, from state governments, from foundations to try to bridge that gap. But the biggest challenge is that public health, you know, the respect for public health for a lot of different reasons um, waned. And I think that might be part of the root cause here. Totally agree. And, um, you know, and now we're from where I sit, we're seeing some other impacts of a, of the lack of respect for public health um, when it comes to working with public health on messaging related to monkeypox, um, when with access or or scheduling of um, public public flu shot clinics, we're working with health inspectors and public health um, nurses that have very little experience because so many public health departments lost half of their staff over the last two years. Um, and we're seeing a variety of different kinds of responses to foodborne illness outbreaks and other kinds of outbreaks working with really inexperienced, inexperienced public health teams. And that's um, an unexpected consequence. I, I, I actually get emotional when you talk about this because I think our public health authorities are some of the heroes in the pandemic and they signed up to do this to not be politicians to not be part of the politics to just provide health care and uh what is it something like 50 percent of them have their lives and their families threatened Mm. from all sides of the spectrum um when when they issued guidance they were criticized by everybody for everything and there was no win. And these are people not, you know, not making a fortune of money. Right. These are people right. who were also essential workers who worked every day and every night. Um, and they're not doing it for recognition, but to do that and work so hard and then only get criticized um, right. is an awful situation. And 
it's going to have, I believe, negative effects going forward for all of us. Monkeypox is just the beginning of that. There are times that we need public health as a nation. We can't just ignore it. Totally agree. Changing topics and circling back to testing for a minute. So early this morning, I uh, got a text from a friend of mine who's a teacher. She's a high school teacher. And she, she relayed to me that a kid didn't look good in class yesterday. And at the end of the day, informed them all that he had tested positive for COVID in the morning, gone to school, went through his schedule. So off he went home. And then this morning when she texted me, he showed up for class again this morning. And um, she reached out to the school nurse and the school nurse said something along the lines of, well, you know, they're only COVID recommendations and we need to be sensitive to each kid's needs. Are you seeing a pattern of people ignoring positive test results now or weighing them, um, responding to them differently? Well, I'm not seeing a pattern of people ignoring positive test results, but to fair, to be fair, I probably have a biased sample. A, if anyone I know would be ignoring them, they probably wouldn't tell me. Um, but I, I think there are two kinds of people who, yeah, I have a very, very different reaction to it, which is one that says, I can't leave my third grader home. Right. I gotta go to work because I gotta get paid. And right. This was a high school kid. Right. This was oh, a high school kid. Okay. Right. I was thinking yeah. a third grader, I get. I get it. And, you know, parents have to make money. But um, high schooler, I, I have a super hard time dealing with that. And, you know, what is the phrase that you can yell fire? You can't, you, you, freedom of speech does not allow you to yell fire in a crowded theater because that causes harm. Um, excuse me to the legal scholars out there. I'm sure I said it incorrectly, but, um, is it fair to do that when there are other options, um, for a high schooler? My answer is no, you don't know that the kid next to you lives with their, you know, parent who's undergoing chemotherapy and, um, this, you know, COVID is a significant issue. Right. Um, maybe they die, maybe hopefully they don't die, but it causes a whole series of other problems and they're not so cavalier with it. Sure. Or that next week the whole school is shut down. Right. And yeah. the second kind of person is I really want to go to the movies tonight and I'm not coughing. I feel fine. Um, but yeah, I got this positive test. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean about the respect for public health. Um, we live in a society, people, let's, let's take care of each other to the smallest extent. Um, let's find ways to be gentle and kind to our fellow, fellow citizens and at least be the smallest bit of respectful and responsible. I have yeah. a friend, I have a friend who, who had three positive tests and was going, you know, called me on their way to the fourth test. And I'm like, why, you know, you've had three positive tests in 24 hours. You don't, you feel sick. You have COVID. Um, and, and I hear a lot of that, or I hear of, I tested positive, you know, 
Monday and Tuesday, today's Wednesday, and I tested negative. So, you know, do I really need to stay home for five days? Well, you know, there are many of us that believe five days is too short of a time. So me, um, I, I am one of those. But then, you know, some of that frustration I get, you know, you've been home for a period of time. And, you know, the CDC is the recommendation of, of the land. And if the CDC says five days, but by the way, nobody listens to this, the CDC says five days and wear a mask. Right. Right. We're getting a lot of questions right now about wearing, about the wearing the mask amongst our clients um, and our, our, the employee populations that we support. We're getting a lot of questions about that. I feel better. I'm not coughing. I'm not sneezing. You know, they wear a mask on the first or second day back to work, but by day seven, from onset or yeah. test positive, do I really need to be wearing a mask or nobody even notices that they stopped wearing a mask? So um, that's really one of the biggest issues that we're seeing right now because those people may in fact still, you know, and, and some of them likely are still infectious. Uh, I, I would say most of them are still infectious. I think yeah. the data would show in all of my experience, I hear from a lot of people who have COVID is they are still infectious till day 10. But right. I think that. Um, the sad thing is that's COVID's secret weapon. The fact that it weaponizes um, people who have zero symptoms can still be spreaders and super spreaders. And ironically, you know, the only other disease that we've seen that was quite as dramatic as this in terms of asymptomatic people spreading is polio. I know. (laughs) I know. And that's a very... Uh, scary thought and topic for my public health peers. Yeah. I mean, and I, I call it, what are the three most dangerous words in during the COVID pandemic? They are, I feel fine. Mm. People say, I feel fine. I don't want to test. I don't want to stay home. I want to get back to my life. And I get it. But it goes back to, can we protect each other? And it's not like at the beginning where you had to be home for 14 days. Mm-hmm. It's the essential workers who can't afford, who don't have the privilege of vacation time, who you know miss hourly pay and have to make some real tough decisions, especially in this inflationary times. Um, I understand why they're concerned about staying home, but on the other hand, it's irresponsible for those of us who who aren't in that situation to expose them further. We've got to take care of And there are people who aren't really in that situation that just, you know, want to go about, you know, I understand we all sort of want to go about our lives now, but, but, you know, feel, feel better, you know, then there's the others that don't feel well, but don't want to test because they don't want to know. If I don't have a positive test, then I don't have COVID. And that's, you know, sort of a whole conversation, you know, for, for another day. Yeah. Denial is a very powerful weapon. Yes, absolutely. So let's, this takes us to discussing this coming fall and winter, because I'm, I'm alarmed by the numbers that you, that you relayed for July and August. What does your crystal ball tell you about this fall and winter? I think it's going to be a tough one, um, but I hope and believe, uh, let me say, I think it's going to be a tough one. Why do I say that? 
first of all, um, we're seeing in Australia, which is usually a pretty good predictor for the U.S., mm-hmm. it's um, an aggressive flu season. It's yes. not like the flu seasons during COVID, um, during the active part of the pandemic and last two years. Oh, it's not like the flu seasons of the last two years. They are seeing numbers at or above previous flu seasons. So that's number one, and people get your flu shot. Number two is what we're seeing with BA4 and BA5 is an earlier Omicron is that you can get infected once, twice. My neighbors four times have had COVID four times in the last year, probably starting with Delta. Um, and that means that people who don't wear masks, and which is virtually everybody, and no changes in behavior, virtually everybody, and bad weather, definitely going to happen. Um, we're going to have people who have both diseases at the same time and are, you know, the disease is going to be rampant. But I understand, I don't agree, but I fully understand and respect people to say that's the price we pay to live in a society. And to be able to do what I want to do is recognizing the fact that there's going to be disease. I not sure I agree, but I respect and understand the people who say that's the price we pay for going back to our pre-pandemic normality. There's going to be disease. People are going to be sick, but let's not stop our economy for that. I get it. But 500 people dying a day, that's a lot of people. And they're not all old and they're not all frail and they're not all immune compromised. Some of them are completely unvaccinated, but, um, husband of a friend of mine, sixties, fully vaccinated, could afford the best and the best of medical care and they couldn't save him. So what I don't want is a complacency that says COVID is just like a cold. It isn't. Um, one final question. Have you been boosted with a bivalent vaccine yet? I have not. Um, I look forward to doing it soon. I am one of those folks that I'm going to wait until a little bit closer to Thanksgiving travel. So I am at my maximum um, when I'm with family over Thanksgiving. How about you? Um, I'm quite a ways out from my last booster, so I probably will go fairly soon. Um, uh, We also have a new baby coming in our family. Um, Congratulations. So so, um, I think many of us, you know, who want to want to get to go to the hospital and see that baby will likely get get boosted when we when we go get our uh, T daps. <laughs> but yeah. but um, thank you very much. Always appreciate your perspective, and um, hope that um, well, I just hope you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I you know it's always great when we end a conversation saying you hope I'm wrong. I assume <laughs> you mean you hope I'm wrong about the negative prediction of right. the flu um, coming season. So Correct. now we have heard some positive we have heard some positive things about Australia that um you know Australians got flu shots better than we do and that they were able to stop the flu season um essential I don't want to say essentially in its tracks, but they were able to really um to really get a handle on flu in Australia. 
um, even though it was a worse than usual flu season. So, yeah, well, I am, I am also optimistic that I'm wrong. Um, but I think that for me, the watchword now is take care of yourself first, put your own mask on before you help others, but don't forget to help others. Got it. Mara, thank you so much. Thank you.